VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right. And good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Wednesday, May the 25th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's producing the program. Today is the day I can hear you out there. You're a longtime listener, tempted to be a first time caller. Make today the day. If you're in the St. John's Metro region, the number to dial is 273 5211, or elsewhere, it's toll free long distance 1 888 590 VOCM, which is 8626. So I've been following along and keeping you folks up to date with the achievements of the St. Peter's High School Python volleyball team. They're playing at the Nationals. So here's an update coming from their athletic director. The Pythons are the U18 Male Division II Tier 1 Volleyball National Champions. They did it. They pulled it off. They're national champions. Uh, They're the first team from Newfoundland and Labrador to ever win the U18 Division II title. Now Newfoundland and Labrador is going to be able to enter teams into Tier 1 because now we've cracked through in Tier 2. So absolute bravo. Went 9-0 in the tournament and the St. Peter's High School Pythons national champions. Absolutely brilliant stuff. Also... There's a lot of attention given to martial arts. Maybe it's the advent and the success of the MMA, the professional, fairly brutal fighting circuit. But in the martial arts world, which is much different as we're teaching some life skills and dedication and athleticism to young martial artists, get a load of this one. Over the 24th weekend, 13 kids and teens from Alex Foley's Academy of Martial Arts competed in the uh, the World Karate Commission, national team sports national tryouts in Ottawa. Top four competitors from each division qualified to represent Team Canada at the World Competition coming up in Ireland this October. Their team brought home nine gold, seven silver, and seven bronze medals in the point sparring, continuous sparring, the kata, and the musical weapons. Girls and boys aged 9 to 19, all 13 competitors came home this weekend with medals. Congratulations to those young martial artists. And also, we're very quickly coming towards the beginning of the Canadian Elite Basketball League. And the Newfoundland Growlers, of course, one of three new additions, including Scarborough Shooting Stars and the Montreal Alliance. The CEBL now has 10 teams in it, and that's more than any other professional Canadian-based uh, sports organization. So, let's see here. Uh, the NHL, the, with 10 teams, has more NHL, uh, pardon me, uh, Canadian-based teams than the NHL, the NBA, and Major League Baseball combined. More than the CFL, which has nine. CPL, which is the Lacrosse League, eight. Major League Soccer, three. So the CEBL, they're pretty bullish on the future that they have. Anyway, are you following along with the Battle of Alberta? Calgary were the betting favorites. Edmonton really handled them. one 3 last night, take a 3-1 series lead. And everyone's focusing on Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl. Vander Kane scored his 11th and 12th to lead the NHL in goal scored for the Oilers. We'll talk about it. We can do it. Another interesting one. We mentioned this when a lady who had bought... The old analog clock from Memorial Stadium. Looking for a home for it? It's found a home. It's now going to be permanently displayed in the Elnor Gill Ratcliffe Gallery at the Rooms. Pretty cool uh, piece of hockey history when you talk about it. She bought it from, at an auction, I think, for a paltry sum. to like $45 comes to mind when I try to think back to the original story. Anywho, there you go. want to say a hearty congratulations to my dear friend and colleague, Linda Swain. She's this year's recipient of the RTDNA Lifetime Achievement Award. Absolutely brilliant. Started in radio in 1989, working at CHVO out in Carboneer as part of the Worldwide Network for VOCM, moving on to CKGA in Gander, and then on into town in 1995. 
She's a household name, hosts various programs, including Nightline. She hosts uh, On Target every weekday now at 1 p.m. She's had an extraordinary career. When asked quite simply about how long she's been in the business, inside of her, her acceptance speech, she says, I love it. She loves knowing what's in store every not what's not what's not in store every day and the immediacy and the intimacy that radio provides. Linda Swain, one of the very best. Congratulations on your due recognition with your lifetime achievement award. Also, a couple of uh, people out there who are leading the charge to try to clean the place up, and we know that by and large, unfortunately, the place is pretty filthy. Walter Harding and his team now, they've picked up 750 bags of garbage on the way to their hopeful goal of 1,000, which they think that they hit in this short order. And also, this story is pretty cool, too. Chesley West, he's a junior high school teacher. He saw what was the mess strewn around his area, Pitts Memorial Drive, Galway, here in town. So he started picking up, and what he found was most of it was reusable shopping bags. He's picked up hundreds, and there's hundreds more to be picked up. He takes them home, washes them, the ones that are still going to be of use to anybody. He's going to deliver them to community organizations and food banks. So just a couple of shining examples of people taking the bull by the horns to do what needs to be done to clean the place up. All right, what else am I going to do here? Oh, so a couple of interesting ones on the silver screen. It was today in 2017 that Wonder Woman, starring Gal Gadot and Chris Pine, premiered in Los Angeles. It was also the first superhero film directed by a woman. Her name is Patty Jenkins. 45 years ago today, May 25th, 1977, Star Wars was released, of course, created by George Lucas. That year was nominated for 11 Academy Awards, won seven of them. The franchise has gone on to be valued at somewhere in the neighborhood between 68 and $70 billion, the Star Wars franchise. Pretty extraordinary stuff. Okay, let's keep going. Talk about the weather. So, the group that's Environment and Climate Change Canada and the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, they're predicting above normal storms for the seventh consecutive year. So they're saying that they estimate 14 to 21 named storms and three to six major hurricanes will develop in the Atlantic Ocean between June the 1st and November 30th, which is generally referred to as hurricane season. A hurricane has to pack winds of at least 178 kilometers per hour and, of course, can cause absolute devastation. Last year, 21 Atlantic storms cost about $80.6 billion U.S. in insured damages. Also went on to lead to losses in excess of $36 billion U.S. I mean, the extraordinary cost. So when we talk about mitigation measures and climate change policy, all you have to look at is the severity and the frequency of storms and the cost for insured recovery and or just general losses last year in excess of $100 billion. So the Atlantic hurricane season, hopefully we don't see much in the way of those vicious storms hitting this neck of the woods, even though we're not immune to it. Uh, just a quick note to those of you out there who have studded tires on your vehicle. You've got less than a week. It's Tuesday, May 31st is the deadline. There was a one-month extension given this year, given some of the poor conditions. You know, the annual debate will continue about the requirement or the effectiveness of a studded tire and what they may be doing to damage the province's roads. Uh, I think the jury's in on the road damage business, but people, of course, they'll make up their own decisions about the comfort that they're given if they put studded tires on their vehicle if they're so inclined. But you've got less than a week to get them off. Just a quick heads up. Okay. So I'm always torn as to how to approach some of these stories. You know, we've been talking about the new legislation that requires ATV riders, Argo riders, side-by-siders to wear a helmet. And there's, I'm being told in no uncertain terms 
that any reference to approving wearing a helmet in a side-by-side means I don't know what I'm talking about. Okay, I can handle that. And people will make up their own decisions. And when we see the stories, horrific losses, I'm really not quite sure how to approach because I, I'm loath to go down the path that makes me sound like I'm mocking or blaming someone that resulted in their death. And I'm not. And I don't want to and have no interest in it. Just three days after the new legislation was enacted, a 33-year-old man has lost his life in an ATV crash. The RCP go on to say that he wasn't wearing a helmet. Our condolences to his family and friends. They also go on to refer to the fact that the chief medical examiner is engaged in the investigation. There's also reference to suspected use of alcohol. Again, this is not a finger point of blame. I don't know the man. I have no interest in doing that. What we also know is that so far in 2022, that marks the seventh fatal off-road vehicle crash collision that's led to a death. So we can continue the conversation, and I get it. For the folks in the side-by-sides who are vehemently pushing back, some of the arguments are, I don't know, pretty flimsy. And I may not know what I'm talking about on that front. I don't have a side-by-side. I, I don't. So I don't have a whole lot of intimate personal knowledge of them, but the legislation is what it is. And if you want to talk about it, we can do it. Just one second, a sip of coffee. Yesterday we made mention of the fact that uh, John Risley, former Clearwater Seafoods boss, has a proposal to buy the port of Stephenville to bring a wind-to-hydrogen project to Newfoundland and Labrador. Apparently there's many proposals on the desks of the politicians, of the premier and cabinet members, for additional type of these projects. We have the abundance of wind. We all know that to be true. Hydrogen is absolutely going to be part of moving forward, however people like to refer to that, the just transition, so to speak. So we'll see what becomes of it. But it's interesting that includes the purchase, the acquisition of the port, which is a deep water port, lots of wind in the area, as we all know. But on that front, you know, when the federal government launched what they were calling discussions regarding the Atlantic Loop, and it's absolutely a federal project, and then all of a sudden Minister LeBlanc says there's additional due diligence required before there's any final approval of what might be a $5 billion investment. So this most recent report comes from Environomics at Navius Research uh, on behalf of the Halifax-based Ecology Action Center. They say that it's not only required, but it's probably still not enough to provide hydroelectricity from Quebec and Newfoundland and Labrador across the Atlantic provinces and potentially markets broader than that, the northeastern United States. That becomes tricky because when we're talking about mass investment in transmission, like even in the state of Maine with a public referendum to say no to it, because of the environmental issues and what they refer to as the eyesore. But if we're talking about coal-fired generation, and both New Brunswick and Nova Scotia still have some plants that they rely on for said generation. New Brunswick has extended, has not agreed to extend the life of their Beldoon generating station beyond 2030. Nova Scotia continues to operate four coal and petroleum coke generation plants. The largest is in Lingen, Nova Scotia, 620 watt, 20 megawatt capacity. So... The federal government really does try to have it both ways. They will talk about net zero and policies moving towards and retrofit of public buildings. At the same time, a final oil approval might be the final if you listen to Minister Stephen Guibault for Beta North. But these types of projects, if they are going to put their money where their mouth is, and if it's an effort for nation building and to help the provinces of New Brunswick and Nova Scotia move away from fossil fuels for electricity generation, coal-fired and petroleum coke in particular, then 
What additional due diligence is required here? You know, you couple that with the fact that the province has launched yet another investigative panel, a task force. This one, I think, critically important to look at what might be the implications of 2041. The immediate hesitation here and reservation of the citizens of the province is Hydro-Quebec, and it always will be. You know, we've had a long, black, bleak road with our relationship with Hydro-Quebec, but whether we like it or not, given the fact that they own the only transmission from the Upper Churchill, some relevant conversation about what that expiration of the contract or extension of the contract or whatever else might be going on, it would be pretty important for Carl Smith and his team of 12, nice backgrounds, professionally speaking, for all the members of that panel, to give us a real clear uh, look at what that means in 2041. Many people look at it as the panacea, the golden egg, but it might not be that. And actually, Dan Sullivan has written a blog on his Uncle Gnarly site regarding some intricacies of the contract that I'm going to try to explore with Mr. Sullivan when he has time to join us here on the program. You want to talk about those things? We can do it. All right, now the tale, the two tales of the issues surrounding the highly coveted, extremely valuable crab processing licenses. The, s the community of St. Mary's and surrounding area, whether it be in Trapassio or Riverhead, they put forward a very forceful uh, push to see the minister approve they want to reopen a plant in St. Mary's with no additional government investment and to have some crab to process, and they've been granted exactly that. They will be able to purchase up to 2.5 million pounds of snow crab and also all species of ground fish along with whelk and snow crab as well. Okay. So it's good news for the residents in that area. Absolutely. The value is undeniable. The jobs are absolutely going to be part of the economic boon for the region. And then you look at what is the important work done by the Processing Licensing Board itself. So while St. Mary's is celebrating, they had about a 50-vehicle motorcade, a parade yesterday to celebrate the decision that came forward, then you look at some of the other communities that did not have their applications approved. Ramia, Bay Roberts, Codroy, and O'Donnell's. Bay Roberts is an interesting one. So it's long been understood that whatever the recommendation was coming from the Processing Licensing Board is that it kind of felt like a rubber stamp. What they recommended, what they said, would absolutely be approved by the minister responsible. In this case, no. So the gentleman who operates the plant in Bay Roberts, the plant owner, Jason Russell, he doesn't get it. He says the minister has rejected the license, no real understanding as to why. The FFAW and President Keith Sullivan say that this is a clear misunderstanding of the issue on behalf of the minister. So when the recommendations have been yay in the past, the approval was granted. In this case... Not so much. Now, I had Mr. Bragg on yesterday. I had no idea about the Bay Roberts uh, decision at that moment in time because it was just minutes after we saw that St. Mary's had been approved. But all the issues inside the, the world of the fishery, you know me. I'm happy to take him on here on the show, including even if you're one of those disappointed plant owners in any of the aforementioned communities that had their applications denied, especially Mr. Russell out in Bay Roberts. If you'd like to join us, we can do it. How are we doing out there, David? All right. A couple of quick notes. So while we look at the concerns by students, administrators, teachers, and parents about what happens in the province of schools, and the K-12 system in particular, so while we are debating and talking about the fact that masks are no longer mandatory, and yes, we have violence in our own schools, and yes, we have a lot of uh, issues that we have to attend to, and again, when I see these stories, I don't know how applicable they are in conversations in this province or country, but... 
The intellectually bankrupt arguments and debates had when we see mass shootings in American schools is mind-numbing. And unfortunately, it seems many Americans are numb to it. So Columbine didn't change the conversation. Sandy Hook didn't change the conversation. Now in an elementary school in Texas, 19 children gunned down yesterday. Two adults, one of them a teacher. You know, we have some gun conversation in this country. It focused, unfortunately, they began, the federal government began with a ban of a variety of different weapons. As opposed to, you know, if we're trying to curb the illegal use of firearms and how they end up in the hands of criminals and focusing our concentration on increasing and enhancing border security, where I think the beginning of the conversation should have been, maybe concurrently with some weapons that may deem to be unnecessary. But for me, it's just, it's grotesque. It's just so horrific. But the conversation never changes. You know, the debates will be had, and they're so stupid. Is what happens if someone kills someone with a spoon? Are you going to ban spoons? No. I mean, I don't know how people's minds go down that particular path, but I know that so many of us will get some of our news from the United States, and that will seep into our psyche. And the gun conversation in this country, we can talk about border security. We can talk about the list of weapons that have been banned by the current federal liberals. And let's take it on if you're so inclined. And people will talk about root causes. And it seems like a bit of a throwaway excuse to say, well, we're simply talking about mental illness. I don't know what was in the mind of that particular criminal, gunman. But certainly, some of these stresses of society can indeed be as a result of what might be the bleeding late capitalism and the disparity between the haves and the have-nots. This has been an unprecedented growth in that gap, that disparity, between people living in poverty and those who are the uber-wealthy. There's been a billionaire minted every single day during the pandemic. 573 people have joined the billionaire club since 2020. The worldwide total is 2,668 billionaires. Now, if people need the, feel the need to talk about the boogeyman that is World Economic Forum and some of the muckety-mucks and sociopaths that may be congregating in Davos, Switzerland for their annual shoulder dislocating pats on the back and yes the hypocrisy with all the limousines and private jets and they're lecturing people about climate change and no I don't think we've got a sovereignty concern stemming from what has been a 50-year gathering of these folks but anyway the numbers of billionaires just makes no sense billionaires have seen their total net worth soar by over 3.8 trillion dollars or 42 percent since the beginning of the pandemic and certain sectors they're making off like bandits and maybe bandit is the right word for some of them Billionaires in the food and agribusiness have seen their total wealth increase by $382 billion, or 45% over the past two years. Net worth of their peers in oil and gas in the coal sector has jumped by $53 billion, or 24% since 2020. Forty new pandemic billionaires were created in the pharmaceutical industry, which has been at the forefront, of course, of the battle against COVID-19. The tech sector, also many billionaires, including seven of the ten's rich seven of the ten's world's richest people. Musk, Bezos, Gates, amongst them. Their, those men, their wealth uh, increased by four hundred and thirty-six billion dollars to nine hundred and thirty-four billion dollars over the past two years. All of those numbers mentioned were adjusted for inflation. So people will talk about eat the rich, tax the rich. Some of it, I think, is maybe potentially even exaggerated in our not-so-progressive tax scheme. But that is really something else. 
And while those numbers of expanded wealth have grown to those lofty heights, astronomical heights, the numbers of people falling into the grip of poverty has grown as well. So there's something badly broken. Badly broken. If you began working in 1492 when Columbus landed, were paid $5,000 cash every single day, seven days a week, or seven days a week, 365 a year. Now, of course, not with compound interest or anything included. $5,000 a day since 1492, you don't have a billion dollars. There's people out there with hundreds of billions of dollars. So when we look at some of the ills of society, some of those are absolutely generated and fostered by the dis absolutely disgraceful wealth disparity in this world, in this country, in this continent, on this continent for sure. Anyway, how about that? We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openline at VOCM.com. Well, let's get a tune on the go. Yesterday we came from 1980. Let's go back to 1970 when Free released this single. It's all right now. Oh, welcome back to the show. I, I'm amazed that no one corrected me on my update regarding the Pythons and their national championship. The guy who was sending me all the updates is from St. Peter's. The team, and I should know better because they've launched a bunch of these guys to play college ball and some varsity university ball, it's O'Donnell. It's O'Donnell high in Mount Pearl. But the guy from St. Peter's was sending me the updates, so I got completely tripped up, and nobody corrected me, which is remarkable because people are quick to correct me, which they should because we want to be accurate. So congratulations to the national champions from O'Donnell High School. First team from the province to win a national title at the U18s. Okay, let's go. Man, oh, man. Line number three. Jane, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. How Hi. are you this morning? I'm doing okay. How are you doing? Good. Um, I want to talk to you about prescription access for people who have contracted COVID. Sure. Could you uh, take us off speaker if, uh, if possible? Oh, I'm not on speaker. Okay. I got you in my uh, Apple headphones. Is that okay? Uh, well, it's a little bit hollow. We'll keep going. Okay. Um, yeah, so my family and I had COVID. Just everyone took it once. And uh, I have three littles under four years old. So my infant super congested, stopped nursing, and I found myself with mastitis. So anyone knows anything about breastfeeding knows that mastitis is really dangerous. It's not to be messed with, and it needs to be treated without delay uh, with antibiotics. So I call eight one one Sunday morning, and I'm very lucky that they make an appointment for later that day with a nurse practitioner who writes me a script. But my pharmacy, Kenmet Pharmacy, is closed on Sundays. So I have the script sent to shoppers on Topsail Road. And I call them to set up a contactless pickup. And they just flat out say, no, they can't do a contactless pickup. And I try to reason with her that I really need this prescription and that I can't feed my baby and I'm in excruciating pain. And she just doesn't even want to hear it. So I start to call other pharmacies and, um, you know, a lot I can't really reach. And the next pharmacy I talk to tells me, you know, they really wish they could help, but they don't have the proper PPE, they say, for a contactless pickup. They do contactless pickup, but they won't do one for me. So I explain, you know, I can show my ID through the window. You can put the script on the hood of my car. She's apologetic, but she just won't help. I mean, this is silliness. This is our third summer living through this pandemic. Have we really been denying people access to timely prescriptions and saying they can't do contactless pickup seems to me like they really you know pushing the delivery um but you know why are they pushing delivery to make money off delivery maybe so like if delivery isn't available especially if delivery isn't available they should be offering contactless pickup uh 
pharmacies offer an essential service, you know, and they made a lot of money during this pandemic off of people that weren't just buying the essentials. So who are they to deny an essential service because it's Saturday or Sunday? I just don't think it's right. So me home with COVID and a screaming baby who was able to eat if I can't get my mastitis cleared up. My baby's breastfed. He doesn't take a bottle. He's on solids. So luckily I had the personal number of my regular pharmacist that came at PharmaSafe. And I text him and tell him what's going on. And he offers to fill the script and drop it at my house. Um, you know, his pharmacy's closed Sundays, and the man is the same. So I think this brings up some important points. Should pharmacies uh, be able to deny an essential service because someone has COVID? I don't think they should. Um, do you know what your pharmacy will do for you? And maybe it's worth looking into for everyone. You know, a, a couple pharmacies in St. John's Metro would sooner see my breast explode and my baby starve than from me out of prescription in a parking lot. Um, you know, when we restrict access to prescription care, that can have dire consequences and big costs for taxpayers, too. Um, you know, some folks don't have the money for delivery and prescriptions, and, you know, maybe they have to choose. For me, going without that prescription in a timely manner probably meant that I was going to be dealing with an abscess that had to be dealt with surgically. So I can't help but think, what if I had been new to the city without someone to trust or someone to turn to? Uh, folks have a whole array of accessibility issues and pharmacies shouldn't be holding prescriptions hostage. I'm wondering what the COVID folks did who didn't have vehicles. You know, would they have to wait days and days for delivery if it weren't available? Um, before I forget, I was in contact with uh, our MHA for Mount Sio, Sarah Studley, on Sunday, and she um, offered to bring my concern to Minister Hagee. But she also gave me her cell and home number and told me if I ever found myself in a situation or bond like that again to call her day or night. And I really appreciate having MHA so well connected. Um, you know, she's clearly on the ground and putting in a lot of hard work with her constituents. I think she's doing a really good job. Um, so that's all I can think of right now. I'm not really 100% yet, and my baby's not really 100% yet. Um, a lot of rough nights this week, and I'm pretty tired. Um, but, you know, you really have to give credit where it's due, and, you know, Brad at Kim at PharmaSave really saved us. So I'm, I'm feeling very thankful and fortunate morning well uh, i guess some good news in a difficult situation so i'm glad that the uh, your your member is doing something on your behalf and has offered to help when need be i'm always a little bit confused because most of the pharmacists that i speak with and we've had many representatives of the uh, of panel on this program in the past and they talk about accommodating where they can now long we've been asked if you have COVID, to not enter a building. But if the, the mm -hmm. offer is made by you, look, here's my ID to the window, I'll get back in my car, I'll put on a mask, I'll put up the window, you lay the prescription on the hood of the car, and we're all off to, we're off to the races. It's a wonder why that can't be done. I suppose they're getting guidance from someone else inside the store. But that sounds like a very fundamental accommodation that could and should be made. I don't know what a delivery charge is for, for prescriptions. I have no earthly idea, do you? No, I don't know. Yeah. 
because I don't imagine there's a big load of revenue coming in on the delivery side and who's responsible for beyond a dispensing fee, the delivery costs. And I know it's been very helpful for folks who don't have a vehicle. And you mentioned not having a vehicle to pick up prescriptions. There was accommodations made for people who needed a test, people who needed a vaccine, for to get that done if you didn't have transportation. Now, because we saw some stories, people sitting in a taxi cab with the meter running as they waited for like a drive-through PCR test or what have you. So things have to be a little bit easier to handle. Flexibility is always going to be the key here where people are struggling. And certainly you shouldn't have to wait one extra minute or hour to get prescriptions for what what was ailing you and your children. So I don't know. Again, if you could have just had it dropped on the hood and everybody just went back to their business and uh, trying to recover, that might have been possible. I don't know. I'll reach out to uh, yeah. the folks at the Pharmacy Association and get their reaction to this. It's difficult, you know, to think clearly when you have three sick children at home yeah. and one of them is a screaming breastfed baby and breastfeeding has stopped, you know? Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, it just seems like it would have been pretty easy for them to accommodate us. And then I wondered, you know, who else is going through this? I imagine you're not alone. Yeah. And so, you know, knowing what your pharmacist can do for you is probably a pretty important conversation because... You know, picking a, picking a place to be a patron and spend your money is also what keeps them going, keeps the doors open and the lights on, so that's fair enough. I, I am going to get some reaction from panel just to see what they have to say about that, but I hope that you and your children are on the mend. I know you're still a bit stuffed up, and the baby's still not back to uh, 100%, so hopefully that happens ASAP. Yeah, we're, we're on the mend for sure. Good. I'm, I'm glad you made time for the show. I wish you well, Jane. Thank you. Thanks so much. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye. Yeah, boy, that's difficult. Uh, will I get Sharon before the break, Dave? She's found somebody. Another good one here on line number one. Hi, Sharon. You're on the air. Hi. Uh, thanks for on there. Happy to do it. Thank you. Uh, I'm calling from Grand Falls, Windsor. Okay. And uh, I was at the Dollarama store in Grand Falls, Windsor on Friday. Uh, that's the one with the Riff store next door to it. Okay. And I lost a large a large sum of money in an envelope. It's either in the dollar store or it was out in the Dollarama parking lot and Risk parking lot in that area. So I'm just hoping that someone is kind enough that whoever picked it up would like to return it to me. Sure hope so, Sharon. I thought you had found some money, but you lost some money. Uh Uh-oh. I'm not going to ask what a large sum is, but losing any money is difficult enough for most of us these days. So if you found an envelope, it was in an envelope, is that what you said? Yeah, it was in an envelope. So an envelope that had a large sum of cash, you know full well Sharon's going to need that to make ends meet. So I know it becomes tricky when it's cash that's been lost, but... Whoever picked it up, now you've heard Sharon's voice and the locations where you might have picked up that envelope with a significant amount of money in it, please do the right thing and return it to Sharon. You can call us. You can call Sharon. We'll make sure you all get connected. Or, or would you like to give out your number, Sharon? Yeah, the phone number here is 489-2756. Okay, I didn't have a chance to pick up my pen. 489 what? Two seven. Yeah. Five six. Okay. Or 290-9695. 9695. Okay, fingers crossed, Sharon. Let me know what happens. I will. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Take care. Have a nice day. You too. Bye-bye. Yeah. 
Hopefully, if you found that money, you know what to do. Even if you spent some of it off the top, return the rest. Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, plenty of time to speak with you. Don't go away. Your VOCM mornings with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy, 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's call to line number two. Say good morning to the PC member for Conception Bay South. He's the opposition house leader, Barry Petten. Good morning, Barry. You're on the air. Hey, good morning, Patty. How are you? Not too bad. Thanks for asking. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. Patty, I'm calling in to discuss uh, this ongoing mysterious report. I suppose it's not so much mysterious. It's mysterious, in fact, it's not made public, but I think we're all well aware there's a report in hand, whether it be in the Speaker's uh, office, the Premier's office, or Attorney General's office. Uh, it's somewhere, and uh, I think it's ridiculous that uh, this has been kept under, under you know, cloud of secrecy. For as long as it has, because, I mean, underneath all this, we talk about a report, but in this report, there was allegations of 21 people involved, with uh, which uh, come forward with bullying and harassment allegations. And that's quite serious. In this day and age, to, I guess, for government to hide beyond procedural rules and regulations and what have you, and all the while those people are sitting on the sidelines frustrated. We're hearing that. We're hearing that. All of us are hearing that. Families are people who are willing to speak publicly. They're frustrated. They've had enough yet. You know, we ask a question in the House to the Premier, and the Speaker will get up and intervene and say it's not, you know, it's not, don't mean to come, it shouldn't come to the House of Assembly at the floor. But yet the report is regarding elections in Newfoundland, and, and uh, uh, the election chief electoral officer is a uh, officer of the House, yet we can't debate it in the House, and it's been kept under, and we're not even told where it's to. And, I think it's uh, I think it's wrong, and I think it's uh, it's not a good show for government. I mean, we we just went through recently in the last month or so the Rothschild report came out, and too much you know much dismay. The government kept that under wraps, and you know it's, they paid five million for the Rothschild report. I don't know. This is an officer of the house that done the citizens rep done this report on election in Newfoundland supposedly. They're about all of them are under public dime, or we're all under you know as me included. And I think we all more to, just not, the public deserves better. Those people deserve better, and it's not the way our, our democracy. Should be working, Patty, and I think it's outrageous. I, I think I understand your point, but I think they're two different things. You know, the Rothschild report, I can understand uh, some things that may be indeed be commercially sensitive and jeopardize the bidding process if it comes to that, but there's zero downside. I don't care what anyone tells me. There's zero downside to telling us whether or not the recommendations are in line with the recommendations that were publicly released in the Premier's Economic Recovery Team report, Moy Green's report. So they won't even do that much. This one about elections NL is a strange one. To not even acknowledge is existence just leads us all to think well of course it's there and it must be quite damning so I just don't know why they wouldn't say yes because we know that there's a lot of protections involving human resources related matters and I think even the privacy commissioner would admit that so admitting that you have it and you're looking at the results of the investigation deciding next steps that's at least one play. The one guy who told me that the report absolutely exists, and he's one of the people that was interviewed because of it, he created a an email, which I replied to, and he quickly deleted the account, which leads me to believe he's absolutely who he says he is. He also went on to say that he doesn't want his name being uh, thrown around on the floor of the House of Assembly. So I'm not really sure what the appropriate play is here, but certainly to acknowledge that the report is in hand and actually does exist is a pretty good start. Yeah, absolutely, Patty, and I think that's the question that we all say. You know, we all we've we've all asked. And I mean, I'm a member of the Managing Commission along with my colleague from Aberdeen, uh, Ellen Conway Atlamer. And when we sit on this, and we, we look after financial operations and a lot of other operations in the House of Assembly, so we came and asked the officials, like, why isn't it coming to us? Most reports come to us before they go to the House. And we're told clearly and explained fine that, didn't, that this 
It didn't come to the Magic Commission. It had to go to these three offices I just listed, the Premier's office, Attorney General, and Speaker. And we're saying, okay, fine. Well, how come it's not going to them? Like, how come we're, we're not being told from them offices what's going on? And I think the cloud and the, the, the uncertainty is terrible. I mean, I can't imagine. I mean, if you're if you're one of these people that are complaining, and I'll even go a step further, Patty, Mr. Chalk. I mean, uh, you're everyone are deemed innocent until proven otherwise. So his name has been bandied about. Whether he's you know responsible or not, we don't know. I can't say good or bad about the man, and I can't you know these people are, are come forward. So we'll never know. Like, you, just tell us the reports there. I think tell the people that they have the report and what the plans are going forward. We don't have to beat people's names around, you know, and, and destroy people's reputations or what have you. But it's a very important, a serious issue, and it comes down to it's about transparency. But it's just bothersome to me. It's like, and then, you know, government can just stand, stand pat and say nothing. And I think it's, it's not, like I say, it's not a good show. And to your point on the Rothschild report, I don't disagree with you a bit, but it's just the sentiment. It's just there. Like, we got something. No, we'll give it to you when we're good and ready. I understand the sensitivities, but it's just the fo- same theme, Patty, and it's frustrating. And I mean, I'm not the only one saying this. We hear this right across the board, and you know, from media on down, everyone, everyone is saying the same thing. And I mean, it's, it's incumbent on government to be more transparent and to be fair to those people. I think that's ultimately, I don't know what political points you score in this one, but I think ultimately the people that are affected, and we're hearing from lots of them, are pretty frustrated and they're, 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 they're not pleased with this and I, and I don't blame them I mean we're advocating for them as much as anyone else anyone else and other colleagues in the House Assembly are doing the same thing because ultimately this is not right this is just not right to those people and I think you know the Premier the Speaker has this order Attorney General somebody needs to come forward and say we have a report and we're reviewing we're doing whatever but they should come you know come out and explain it to the public instead of keeping the shroud of secrecy over, over, over it which makes it and as time goes on it gets worse as you know this stuff will grow and, and become a life of its own longer it's uh, not dealt with the issues of commercial sensitivities I get it now we've seen some potential exaggerations of uh, saying that there's a client solicitor privilege or cabinet document HR issues are probably the trickiest piece of business you can indeed have people remain unnamed and just refer to uh, candidate one has said this happened in the office candidate one can remain unnamed but at least we'll have a better understanding of what we're actually talking about here so with all the vagaries all people do, and it happens every single time, is everyone's mind goes to worst-case scenario. And that's never in anyone's best interest. Not the people that were potentially or allegedly harassed or bullied. It's certainly not in the best interest of Mr. Chalk. It's definitely not in the best interest of the government. So I just really don't know why we don't have a, a better read of the tea leaves when we decide how to talk about these reports, what the next steps are, an appropriate level of debate, access to media, access for members of the opposition, as opposed to... Uh, duh, I don't know. That's probably not the best way forward. I'll give you the last word, Barry. No, Patty, I appreciate your time, and to your point, you're right. We don't have to get the names. Jane Doe and John Doe is fine. I think the issue is the most important, is that, and, and, and really probably out of reports being handled, and I think government needs to uh, need, needs to do a better job, and I think they, they should do so uh, quickly because uh, right now uh, right now is not a good show, and I, I mean, I think most people feel the same way. So, And I appreciate you for your time again today, Patty, as always, and uh, take care. You too, Barry. Thank okay. you. Bye-bye. Bye. It's Barry Patton. He's the PC member of Conception Bay South, opposition house leader. Well, I, yeah, I should should break them a little behind the time, sir. When we come back, we're going to talk about a bike fundraiser at the Rotary, and then Hubert Oz in the queue to talk about his paramedics week. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go. Line number four. Good morning, Christina. You're on the air. Good morning. How are you, Patty? Very well. Thank you for asking. How about you? Good, good. Nice and sunny today, so can't complain. Not at all. 
Yeah, so I just wanted to give you a call today to talk a little bit about the Rotary St. John's East uh, third annual bicycle project that we are in the swing of things with now. So uh, Rotary is an international volunteer organization and the St. John's East Club here in, in town is a group of 45 volunteers and back at the beginning of the pandemic, um, Lots of people probably recall it was really difficult to get your hands on things like bicycles um, and other uh, equipment for outdoor activities. And uh, we came up with this project to support our community um, to collect used bicycles and uh, redistribute them to folks who may not have access to a bike uh, themselves. So over the first two years, we were able to collect about 250 bicycles and have made some really great community partnerships um, in order to progress the project. So, yeah, I just wanted to give a little bit more information about um, what we're all about and how the project is doing and how folks can uh, can help. The fact of the matter might be, now I might have a bike at my home where one of my children has outgrown it, for instance, and it's still in perfect working order and I'd like to find a new home for it. But there's also the possibility that the bike might be in need of repair. So what do you have planned for those types of bikes? Because, like, for instance, I know full well in my shed there's a bicycle that you can have, but it needs repair. Mm -hmm. Then what? Yeah, so we have made a partnership with the group Ordinary Folks, who some people might uh, recognize from them uh, helping out at the farmer's market. So they actually join us on our bike maintenance and cleanup day, which this year is on June 18th, to do a safety check of every single bicycle that we collect. And they also do um, maintenance, like fixing chains, gears, and tires, to make sure every single bike that we give out to the community is safe for use. Yeah, and I, I knew that answer because someone reached out to me the other day about information for Ordinary Spokes. They're a good group. You know, there's a lot of discussion surrounding bicycles, and some of it, and I'm, I'm not going to put you on, on the policy hot seat here, but we've got talk about helmets, and we talk about shared-use trails, we talk about bike lanes and make the, uh, the place more bike-friendly, but we've seen a big uptick in the numbers of people who have bought bicycles or got back on their bicycles during the pandemic, so there's absolutely a load of people out there who threw for a variety of reasons, can't afford to either fix their bike or can't afford to get a new bike or have outgrown their old bike. So I'm sure this puts the smile on a lot of faces. And I think you said 250 bikes collected in the first two years. Yeah, so we collected about 100 the first year, about 150 last year. And we're at, I believe, about 60 bikes. And we only kind of started collecting within the last week or so. Um, but I think one of my favorite things about the project is that we um, have made a partnership with the Association for New Canadians, um, as well as our adopted schools in the center city area, um, to get bikes in the hands of new Canadians and refugee families. Um, and a lot of the time, you know, most people's minds go to bikes are great for exercise. Um, but for um, some of these families, it really can be life-changing. And, um, I mean, for children, inclusion in their neighborhood friend groups is a big thing. Without a bike, you know, they're being excluded, not on purpose, but simply because they didn't have access to a bike. And now they do, and they can, you know, further make friends and be included. Um, but also for getting to school on time. Uh, there's lots of families who live within, um, you know, areas that they're ineligible for busing. So it can allow kids to get to school on time. But it can also allow adults or teenagers to get a job um, and gain meaningful employment and have a way to work and you know support their families so a bike isn't just for exercise and um, for a lot of these new Canadian and refugee families um, it can really be life-changing as they start their new life here in here in Newfoundland. So if I'm dodging around a bike in the basement or out in the shed or the garage and I think that might might find home at the uh, Rotary St. John's East what now? 
Absolutely. So um, before I go back to that, I forgot to mention we also have an awesome partnership with Canary Cycles. So in regards to safety, none of our bikes or scooters go to a family without a helmet. So every single person who gets a bike from Rotary St. John Geese, they also get a helmet. And Canary has just been amazing in uh, sourcing those helmets for us when, uh, you know, the first year we cleared out the Canadian tires in town and we just simply there you couldn't get your hands on equipment so um, they have been instrumental in this project too Terrific. so there's a couple ways you can help so if you do have a bike or scooter kick it around your shed or in your house um, you can email lk12 at gmail.com um, or you can text or call me directly at 709 689-2443. We have drop-off locations all across the metro region. Um, however, we can pick up bikes from your house if need be. Um, if you don't have a bike but still want to contribute to the project, we do have a uh, Canada Help page. So if you follow Rotary St. John's East on Facebook or connect with that email or that phone number, we can uh, get you that information. And every monetary donation, you will also get a tax receipt. Um, and the other option to help us out is to volunteer. So our bike maintenance day is on June 18th, um, and then after that we'll be delivering these bicycles to families um, on an ongoing basis. So we're always looking for volunteers, especially with trucks uh, or SUVs who have room to fit bikes in their cars. Um, yeah, so those are those are three couple different ways that uh, you can contribute to the project. And if anyone is interested in learning more about Rotary, um, I do have people you know inbox me all the time saying how can I get involved in volunteering, uh, things like that. So you can also give me a call or a text uh, or email me at christina.nh at gmail.com. I've got all the contact info on hand, and hopefully folks will do exactly that. Get one of the old scooters or bikes in your shed, garage, or basement and donate it for some other young child or adult who will need a bike and a new helmet, which I think is a great compliment to the program. Appreciate this, Christina. Thank you. Thanks, Daddy. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. There we go. That's a good program. All right. Appreciate the patience of Hubert Dodd to talk about paramedics. Of course, uh, Hubert's with the Teamsters Union. Randy wants to talk about the atrocities in Eastern Europe. Don't go away. You're busy, but you'll never be uninformed. Get up to date on the way home. The Drive on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Good morning, Hubert Dodd. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. What a gorgeous day it is here today. It is a beautiful day. Uh, I apologize. I can't remember the uh, local number for your Teamsters Union. What, what's the local? 855. 855. I would have been wrong if I had to guess. Welcome to the show, Hubert. So it's Paramedics Week. It is Paramedic Services Week in Canada this week, and uh, our union wants to offer a heartfelt uh, thank you to all our EMRs, paramedics, and dispatchers working in the province. Uh, the theme for this year's uh, Paramedics Week Services Week is Faces of Paramedicine. And our poor paramedics are proud, beaten, and bewildered, but uh, they're out there. We And we really appreciate the job that they're doing every day to answer the call when the people of our province uh, need their assistance. Well, they do. I mean, the the issues plaguing the paramedics uh, across the province have been long running. And still no real change in sight. You know, the thought that there might be a big multinational come in to take over the whole kit and caboodle, the disparity between uh, rural and urban and the drop-off times at emergency rooms, the list just goes on and on. Are we making any progress? Because even when they expand the emergency room for paramedics to drop off their patients, it doesn't necessarily mean that we're uh, finding any efficiencies. We've just got the same number of paramedics waiting virtually the same amount of time, and while they're waiting to offload a patient, their ambulance isn't available. Available to respond to calls, or are we making any headway? 
unfortunately, Patty, I have to be negative on that one. Um, we uh, we don't even have the same number of paramedics now. I think the overall registration for the province this year has been down over 200 paramedics. We have ambulances that are parked that literally cannot be staffed. And then, like you said, you add in the conditions like, you know, the, the increase in call volumes that these are, that areas are starting to see now as our population ages. That's a big factor there. Uh, the wait times at the hospitals while we, you know, we're in what we call offload delay. It's taken a big toll on, on the, the individuals that are out there providing these services. And we're not getting any relief. Like, we still have this obstacle with a copper exam. We just had a graduation class from uh, from Kona of paramedics. Should be 24 people that should go right into our system, and they cannot go to work because they don't have this exam written. And because of how their course ran, because of delays and whatever else, they will not get to write this exam until August. So we have at least 24 people who could be on the road, could be relieving some of the stress that our system is facing, that are sitting at home waiting to get out onto the road. And, you know, today's theme on the Paramedic Services Week is professional development, and paramedics have to continue to learn every day. And you learn by going out, doing your calls, interacting with other medical professionals at different healthcare facilities and stuff like that. If you're sitting at home, your skills are going to deteriorate, and you're not, of any, you're not, you're not maintaining the benefit that you could be to the people of this province. The numbers of red alerts are astonishing, and I hear from different parts of the province, whether it be in Trapassi, for instance, where, and down in, uh, in Burgio and places like that. Now round trips with the reduced number of paramedics, we've got round trips taking like six hours, and that's best-case scenario. So these types of things are not working for people, and you know when it might be your turn and you need a first responder, paramedic included, to not have one available is something that should concern all of us. Then we get into disparity rates of pay and the numbers of hours on call or actually working inside the ambulance so there's so much yet to be solved or improved regarding paramedics and we all owe them a debt of gratitude not only for what they do for what they see and to understand that there's a lot more to it than simply showing up for an emergency call doing some triage and transporting patients to hospital they see things that none of us would be able to handle in normal terms yeah that's definitely true there patty and i mean you know, we, we are, we're very excited about the health accord and, you know, the, that we, we, you know, are a prominent part of that. But I don't, you know, it, it's not where we, where we should be right now. And I mean, like, the health accord is going to download a lot more responsibilities onto our paramedics that I don't think our system can handle. And, you know, it's, it's a positive thing that the government is looking forward to or looking towards moving to ahead with this health accord because our, our whole health care system needs it, not just the paramedic side of it. Sure. But we, you know, we need to have the resources. We need to build a base before we can make a successful, successful approach and attempt at the, uh, the recommendations of the health accord. Inside the 57 recommendations, what beyond the fact that they were going to bring air ambulance and ground ambulance into the one authority? What else was in there regarding paramedics in particular? Okay. So yeah, we, we, the, the, that's the big one, and the only one that we really had confirmed right now is that everything is going under one authority. Okay. Um, we do know that the private operators have been informed that you know this their their contract was extended this time around with no changes in you know the operating costs or the wages or anything like that, which you know upset the operators, of course, but it upset the paramedics also, because we are seeing an increase in our workload. We're seeing an increase just to live in this province. And, you know, do, do, you know, wages are a big part of that. I mean, like, even before the last round of wages, and we did really well in the last last ASA, 
uh, you know, paramedics were, were struggling to make it paycheck to paycheck. And you know, as things increase and as it becomes more expensive to live in this province, if we need, if we're going to keep these dedicated, well-trained individuals, we have to give them the incentives to to be able to live here. It doesn't even come down to a matter now that I want I want to work here or work here or I don't want to work here. It's now the fact that I can't afford to work. I've, I've gone. I've gotten educated. I've met all the criteria. I have to do continuing education every year. I have to re-register every year to maintain being a paramedic, and I can't afford. Literally to live in this province because the wage that I'm being paid doesn't reflect what it what, what it's costing me to live in this province, and that's drawing people away from us. You know? I, I appreciate the time, Hubert. Anything else you'd like to add? I just again we want to wish you a bit a heartfelt thanks to all the people that we have working in the province in the EMS system, and wish them all the best. Thank we, you much for your time, Danny. We echo that as well. Thanks for this, Hubert. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. It's uh, Hubert Da, Teamsters Union, 855. Pretty sure that's what we said, 855. Let's go to line five. Randy, you're on the air. Morning, sir. Morning to you. Patty, I want to talk about the war in Ukraine. Okay. And it is an atrocity, like you said. But now they say the first casualty of war is the truth. And that's certainly the case with this war here. But when you listen to the mainstream media, you get the same narrative. This is a war, good against evil, emotionally driven. Putin is the evil, of course, and everybody else are the good guys. So you, from the media, we're getting the who, what, when, where. But the why, the why is either missing or foggy or nothing concrete, open for speculation. People are constantly theorizing about why this is happening. Now, let me be clear. This is a war crime Putin has committed. It came out after the Second World War and the Nuremberg trials that aggression against a sovereign nation is a war crime, and this is a war crime. But the problem here, I find, the historical content is missing. Why did this happen in the first place? Well, what, in your estimation, why? Well, I did a little bit of research on it, and I found out something very interesting. I think you'd like to know it. I think everybody would like to hear. Uh, after after the breakup of the Soviet Union, there were provisions put in place to prevent such an event as this war from happening. But no one's talking about it. I, don't, I didn't hear anything in the media about it anyway. But let me give you an example. In 1991, George Bush Sr. and the Secretary of State, James Baker, sat down at the negotiating table with Mikhail Gorbachev to hammer out an agreement of what Eastern Europe would look like post-Soviet Union, and he came to an agreement. It was a quid pro quo, which simply means this for that. You do something for me, I'll do something for you. Both sides would have to make concessions. Now, first of all, Gorbachev would allow for the reunification of East and West Germany under NATO. Now, this is a huge concession, because you remember only 50 years before that, that Russia was virtually destroyed by Germany in the Second World War. They lost 40 million people. Now, that's something hard to forget. Yeah, well, they lost 27 million active military members and some 10 to 13 million uh, civilians. So what does the 1991 issue have to do with this unprovoked aggression? Well, they sat down and and hammered out this quid pro quo. Gorbachev Gorbachev stipulated that uh, the United States and NATO 
would not be allowed to move, and he quoted it like this, quote, one inch further east than the two unified Germanys under NATO. Now, this agreement was upheld all during the Bush one administration. But then in come Bill Clinton. In the early years of the Clinton administration, he too upheld the agreement. But around 1994, he began to talk out of both sides of his mouth. Yes, he would have hold it, and no, he wouldn't. Now, shortly after this, Bill Clinton reneged on this agreement and bought in Poland, Hungary, and Slovenia to join NATO. Now, when Bush too came, became president, he opened the floodgates and invited all 14 former Soviet bloc countries to join NATO. Obama did the same thing. Now, Patty, look at the mess. 2022, Russia is surrounded by NATO, and they want the Ukraine to join too. Now, the Ukraine is the geopolitical line in the sand that Putin has drawn, and NATO and the U.S. have crossed it. This is what caused this war, Patty. Yeah, so... It's been going on for 25 years. Capitulating to thug tyrants like Putin sounds like the dumbest idea of all time to me, to be honest. Like, who cares what the Russians want so far as NATO? Who should be allowed to join the defensive alliance that is NATO? If NATO was an organization that was obviously and willfully aggressive and militaristic as opposed to defensive, which it clearly is, then I could probably understand some of that uh, historical context offered to this might, current we aggression. Might at, we might look at it as defensive, but Vladimir Putin and anybody in Russia would not look at the NATO to them is a hostile military alliance. Well, but uh, but of course it's not. So what they think is maybe living in their own little, uh, unfortunate militaristic fantasy world. But the fact of the matter is nobody can point to one act of aggression by NATO as a defensive alliance since the creation of the, the treaty alliance that it is. So I mean, we're also talking about capitulating to people like Putin, which just sounds like such a terrible idea. People well, constantly just hold on. People constantly send me emails saying, well, we should just give him the Donbass or just give him this or that. Just give him X, Y, or Z. You know, we've got to give him an off-ramp. I mean, how and why all of a sudden have we decided that what Vladimir Putin says or wants should determine or dictate the conversations? Just sounds like a strange place to start. Well, let me ask you this question. Sure. Where did these former Soviet bloc countries get the billions of dollars to arm themselves, which is required under NATO? Where did they get the money? I don't know. Where did they, they get the money? Poor, I'll tell you where they got it. Uncle Sam gave him a big loan, a big fat loan to buy these weapons. And who supplied these weapons? Guess who? The U.S. military industrial complex. It was a bonanza for them with no end in sight to arm all these countries with all their weapons. This is the reason for the war, Patty. It's as simple as that. No political leader would allow a huge military alliance like NATO to amass on its borders Vladimir Putin or anybody else. It's not the expansion of Russia in the Eastern Europe that sparked this war. It's the U.S. and NATO that expanded into Eastern Europe. So you're now, saying... You're what? saying that the threat was that there would be a pending invasion of Russia? No, but when you when when you arm all these countries, they surround your your country with all kinds of weapons from the United States. What are they supposed to think? They're there for defensive reasons. The United States has brought their weapons to Eastern Europe. Now, let me tell you this one last thing. I don't oh. want to hold you too long. Okay. The Pope just came out and accused NATO of the same expansion. Now, you can Google it. It's online. He came out about two weeks ago. And he said, this is what he said. He likened NATO to a dog barking at the gates of Russia, causing the Kremlin to make the wrong decision and invade the Ukraine. 
You can Google it yourself. Yeah, I'm not so sure, you know, uh, having the Pope chime in on international militaristic relations and cause and effect is necessarily the best source of uh, anything. But... Um, I think there's a little bit of context left out of this, is that Russian behavior in the last uh, decade and a half is pretty clear indication of their willingness to move into other regions, whether it be the Ukraine, the annexation of Crimea. It's not like people are making up the problem that Vladimir Putin poses. He's proven it. So, you know, uh, again... In 2014, the uh, Ukrainian government, which was pro-Russian, was ousted, was ousted, in a coup. And guess what was replaced by? A pro-American government. And immediately the United States started pouring cash and weapons into Ukraine. Ukraine is not a part of NATO, but it really is. It really is. It's a de facto part of NATO. And it should be allowed to be. Well, it should be allowed to be, right. Well, what about this line in the sand that they've drawn? How far they're in your front Patty, they're in your front yard. What are you going to do? Let them in the door. Look at the map. Ukraine is part of Russia. You have a hostile military alliance, the greatest power in the world standing at the head of it, the U.S. military, and you're going to let them come in your front door. No country would ever allow such a thing. Imagine on the other side. They weren't even imagine, knocking. Imagine the, the, imagine the Warsaw Pact uh, uh, voting to join Mexico or, or any place close to the United States. Sure, it'd be a war. Look what happened when they, uh, when the Khrushchev put the missiles in uh, in Cuba. Suriyama started a war, and I was blew up the world. That's what happened. So the United States, the door swings one way, their way. They, they can do all this and expand right into Eastern Europe. But right the absence the, of the Cold War is also a pretty important piece of historical context here. When you talk about the Cuban Missile Crisis, there was a war. There was a world teetering on the brink of the nuclear holocaust. That's just not the case anymore. So a lot of these justifications being offered are based in pretty flimsy rationale. The only reason, the only reason the nuclear weapon, the weapons were put in Cuba is because Castro was frightened that the United States was going to invade and take it over. That's the only reason they put the weapons there. And when they took them out, there was an agreement made between the United States, Kennedy, and Khrushchev that they would re- that the United States would remove the nuclear weapons in Turkey aimed at the Soviet Union. There's a quid pro quo there at the same time. But we never hear it in the news. There's no historical context in any of this. It's just one man, Putin, the evil man. But let me tell you something. There's a lot of evil men out there. There, That may very well be, but uh, diminishing any of the role that Putin plays is just really a fool's errand. So did the Pope of the Catholic Church say what you quoted, or was this the Russian Orthodox guy? (laughs) No, I heard that. No, no. It's a question. I don't know the answer. They put it in that. It was put in that context to make it look like it was the Russian Orthodox Church. But the Pope came out and said it. You go online. You look it up. As many. I simply many asked you a question, Randy. If it was the Pope yes, of the no, Catholic Church. Was, okay, I'll answer the question. It was the Pope. Fair enough. I appreciate the time. Okay, sir. Thank Thanks, you very Randy. Much. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye bye. All right. I did indeed mention this man's name off the top of the show, Jason Russell. He's the plant owner and operator out in Bay Roberts. There was a recommendation by the Processing Licensing Board to give that plant a license. It was rejected by the minister, which is not normally what happens. Jason Russell, right after this, don't go away. Welcome back, guests. Uh, welcome back to the show. So yesterday we were told that Minister Derek Bragg had granted approval for a processing license of crab for the community St. Mary's and their plant out there. Four other communities left on the outside looking in. Ramia. 
Conroy, O'Donnells, and Bay Roberts. The owner of the plant, uh, Bay Roberts Seafood, uh, joins us on line number one. That's Jason Russell. Good morning, Jason. You're on the air. Oh, hi, Patty. How you doing? I'm doing okay. How about you? Good, good. I, I heard that I was summoned to your chambers this morning. <laughs> That's one way to put it. <laughs> I had a few calls and texts there, so thought I may give you a shout. Sure, and I'm glad you did. Uh, and what we basically said is that, you know, there's two different tales to be told here about the role of the licensing board, recommendations they make, the grants of approval in St. Mary's, of course, well-received in the 50-car parade in that community yesterday. But your plant, it was recommended by the board that you get or keep your license. It's gone by the wayside. Did you know about the recommendation prior? to the minister's announcement yesterday um yes um we had you know there were other applicants and we were all communicating with with each other um and we uh you know we had inside information and we the recommendations that we heard uh they were true they were correct uh, recommendations so uh we were blindsided yesterday there's no doubt about that so you know when we play a little bit of inside baseball you try to make sure the accuracy of the information you're getting did you do anything or make any investment or take any steps with your business thinking that your crab license would be renewed well we've been taking steps right now for 44 years uh patty it started 44 years ago um we've been taking steps to this day and uh, we this plant has stood the test of time over 44 years there's been there were really really bad years many bad years not a whole lot of good ones but a lot of bad years and only for my 75 year old father uh still at the plant actively 17 18 hours a day working uh, the buildings uh, would not be standing, but uh, you know that's uh, that's what we've been actively doing. And 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 a sh- uh, to answer your question directly, yes, we have been uh, we were we have been preparing because we heard a lot of good things uh, were coming out. Uh, the board uh, recognized that the industry uh, there was room there in the industry to issue uh, more licenses, and, uh, and to say we were. Uh, blindsided yesterday is, is an understatement. You say that you think the minister's reasoning is very subjective. What do you mean by that? Um, so he gave two reasons as to why he uh, would not, uh, why he rejected the board's uh, decision. Now let me remind you that the board did their homework. The board already did their homework. That's the purpose of the board. Okay, the purpose of the board, they are the experts in this field. They are the ones who do their homework. They, uh, they know the industry in and out. And uh, based on uh, the information that we submitted and our proposal, um, they decided that, uh, that we should get, uh, get the license. So the minister, uh, I guess, is looking at this piece of paper, and he's talking about how he's been scratching his head and losing sleep over the past two weeks or three weeks, whatever. Um, uh, the minister looks at it, I guess... Um, very subjective. The two, re- one of the reasons he gave was that, uh, um, based on DFO's current assessment of the stock, uh, the crab uh, stock will be declining. May project now may decline within the next two to four years. Okay, so if that was a concern of yours, Minister Bragg, why did you issue a license to St. Mary's and increase another license in Placentia? So that 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 one, I I don't fall for that one. And further to that argument, he also issued a groundfish license. And I think um, we don't need DFO to tell us that groundfish are going to be uh, decreasing within the next two to four years. Uh, we're on the brink of a moratorium right now. So that that argument there is shot down. Um, the other uh, reason he gave is that uh, uh, giving us a license would negatively impact uh, processing facilities within our region. Now, within our region, there are other crab processing facilities. 
Um, Patty, normal uh, practice in the fishery is like the majority of crab. There, there are some plants that are adjacent to the waters and the, the boats will land at those plants. But most crab is, is trucked from other areas and other bays, uh, Placentia Bay, St. Mary's Bay, whatever, are trucked to these plants and multiple other plants around the island. So um, the, the, the two million pound quota, let me let me just say that the two million pound quota, you know, uh, less than two percent of the overall quota. Uh, to us, uh, would not have uh, negative, negatively impacted uh, the major players that are in the industry right now. The issue surrounding what the crab uh, stock might look like in two to four years seems to me, saying out loud, that if indeed there is a decrease, we may indeed see some license reapplications rejected, as opposed to we're using crystal balls to make a decision about the remainder of this year and or next year. So that's a bit of a strange one, and it's a fair point on groundfish. For that to be part of the St. Mary's licenses is interesting. I wasn't surprised that they got an approval for X amount. They said they had access to four million pounds. They've been given a license approval for two point five million pounds you also go on to say you're not going to accept the rejection letter which means what's next steps well let me just uh make one point there sure. with regards to saint mary's and the other applicants i'm very happy for them uh very like you know we we all work together and uh, they're good friends of mine and uh you know we're all in the same industry here um and the bigger plants as well uh, that would not want i i can't what business or what industry out there would want to see new entrants come in on their business i understand all that and um you know i just i just want to point out that we're just looking for a little piece here that's it just something to keep the lights on uh but anyway i just want to make that point and what was your question again patty uh what was my question oh yeah you say you're not going to accept this rejection letter so i ask what is what are the next steps so um, since yesterday, I have made multiple. I have sent multiple emails to our premier Fury. I've sent multiple emails to um, uh, Minister Bragg. Um, only this morning, he got back to me and said that he would meet me next week. And uh, I, I'm not accepting that. I want to meet Mr. Bragg right away. Um, this is not something I want to put off. Uh, there's a whole lot. He has he has caused a storm in this industry now. I think that uh, that there's going to be a whole lot coming back on him. Um, uh, Minister Bragg has um, done something to go against the board. So my question right now is to Reg Anthony and the processing board. Are you guys looking at each other right now, scratching your heads and saying, why are, he- why are we here? What's our job? Why are we doing this now? Is, is, you know, it, what, what this minister, what he has done is uh, he's taken the he's, he's the board was to take politics out, but he's just injected it back in. And I've been after uh, Premier Fury now for two days. And if he's listening, can, I, I would really like to have a talk and I'd really like to have a meeting with him and Bragg. I want to get this situation fixed right away because this is a mistake and uh, we're not going to stop. We're not going to stop until uh, until we get some answers. And the answers he gave me in the rejection letter are not sufficient. I appreciate making time for the show, Jason. Anything else you'd like to add? Uh, no, I guess uh, I'd just like to say, um, you know, it's, it's a very, this fishery is, uh, uh, it's the backbone of our province. And, um, you know, there's uh, there's a lot of good things here going on. And, uh, you know, there's, but there's, there's a lot of things that need to be, uh, there's a lot of things that need to be worked on. And uh, Minister Bragg, um, Minister Bragg is a uh, servant of the public and uh, Andrew Fury put him there and he is incompetent of serving that position and I uh, believe that he should step down and have someone more competent run that department. Uh, last one, does this mean the doors of Bay Robert Seafoods are closing? Th- this is this is the first step 
of a very bad future. Uh, unless there are other significant changes and other species in the, of the fishery, uh, right now the outlook it's not looking it's not looking the best. But um, you know it's uh, we'll 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 do our best. Uh, however, uh, this uh, very minimum uh, quota that uh, that we were recommended for uh, would have definitely uh, helped us along. I appreciate the time. I wish you good luck. Thank you. Thank you, Patty. Thank you for your time. You too. Take care. It's Jason Russell. He's the plant owner. Bay Robert Seafoods. Uh, let's take a break. Don't go away. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number 6. Say good morning to uh, farmer Sarah Crocker. Good morning, Sarah. You're on the air. Hi. Good morning. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, a beautiful, sunny day here, and you know we're thinking about local food and and seed supplies. We've been trying to talk about it a little bit here. You know, there's a bunch of interesting facts. We have the fewest farms of any province in the country. The explosion in the cost of fuel, feed, and fertilizer is jeopardizing potentially some smaller operations this growing season. But when we talk about security and food supply, you're with an organization called Seed Change. What are you working on? Yeah, thanks. Um, I'm really connected to our, you know, our local food system. And a couple of years ago, I joined the board of an organization called Seed Change, which is really interested in seed sovereignty and the idea of, of specifically seed security in Canada, and that we can um, grow and save seeds that are locally adapted and suited to our climate. Um, to ensure food security for all. So what do we currently do in Canada? Because there are some countries in this world, they have actual bunkers that are there only to house seeds when and if there's a global shortage, they would have a stockpile of seeds to work with. What do we do in Canada? Yeah, um, things like that, you know, that's kind of like the doomsday option. Yeah. That's not really, you know, that's that's like the last resort. So kind of what, we, what we're talking about, you know, in, in the sort of spring planting season is obviously people are aware that, you know, rising costs of things, with the Ukraine-Russia conflict, that, you know, these are going to exacerbate food insecurity issues and um, climate change, other factors that are just sort of outside any one individual farmer's control. Um, we need new initiatives so that we're more resilient and we have affordable food supply. So um, one of the things that sort of seed change has come up with is a program to boost local seed supply uh, and food production so that it is affordable and to ensure that farmers are helping other farmers with that work. So we're doing... Um, 20 demonstration sites actually across Canada. Over 200 farmers are involved in this to promote local varieties and, and share them and, and trial them so that they're performing really well. This question comes from ignorance. So offering more seeds to Canadian farmers, how does that help control the cost of the product? Because for farmers, it would mean, you know, if they already have seeds and or if they need to expand their actual uh, geographical footprint to grow more. So how does seed change address cost of the product? Yeah, so, I mean, most people already know that it's important to support, support our local food growers. Um, but Canadians can also make a big impact by looking for local seeds. And that means um, small, like we have a lot of small farmers in Newfoundland and Labrador who are selling direct to their consumers. It's not for wholesale. It might be just the person down the road, someone you see at your farmer's market. Um, so when we support these like independent seed companies, we can offer a wider variety of um, interesting fruit and vegetables 
and and rebuild that um, local seed and food security. So keeping the costs um, low obviously is a challenge um, given the cost of food and fuel for everyone. Um, but if we do increase our local seed production, we'll be less vulnerable to these like bigger global shocks that everyone's kind of feeling the pinch on. And I know you're representing seed change here this morning, but you know, it was a couple of years ago, the province made a big investment out at the Western Agricultural Center Research out in Pinsbrook. They've expanded the offering some 64,000 hectares of land. That's been slow going, whether it be clearing the land or new operations, setting up shop. And as I mentioned before, fewest number of farms of any province in the country. If you had to add to the seed change conversation about how we expand our agricultural industry in the province, where do we start? I've, I mean, I don't know much about it, but I was thinking aloud things like, you know, if we pepper the entire landscape with greenhouses to help support mm-hmm. farmers, to help support reliability and security of supply, where should the province be moving? Because this issue has now reared its head to levels that I've never seen since I've been in this job, for instance. Yeah, no, certainly it seems like uh, the, the province has really made, you know, a lot of interest in self-sufficiency. What can we grow? What can we do very locally to ensure um, we have you know, access to agricultural land, like you said, um, great programs with like a transplant, um, that a, a vegetable transplant program that a lot of farmers are taking advantage of in the province. But the issues are are pretty big, right? They're bigger than the province. They're at the federal level and obviously like global trends as well. So what seed change can really do is we actually have um, a real focus on farmers helping farmers. So with this program through Agriculture and Agri-Foods Canada, Um, like it'll be the farmers sort of leading that work to evaluate and showcase Canadian grown farmer bread seed varieties. So while we are in the conversation around global food supplies, we're coming up with local solutions, things that are regionally adapted, which can be really hard to find. Um, You know, farmers are buying seeds from maybe sometimes the same seed catalog that just a regular home gardener is. So we also want to increased um, the ability of small growers and small seed savers to sell their product. So we also have a list of Canadian seed companies, which includes um, three in Newfoundland and Labrador, where you can find locally grown seeds. So, um, yeah, I'd love to so, sort of direct people to our website. It's uh, weseedchange.org and the slash local seeds, but you could find it there to uh, find different varieties of locally grown seeds. I would imagine there's a multi-pronged approach to dealing with this issue, as you rightfully point out. So there's a bunch of seed demonstration sites across the country. How about here? Yeah, in Atlantic Canada, um, we're working with Hayes Farm in New Brunswick and another site in PEI. Um, there isn't one on the island um, in this round, but certainly we have pulled from different growers to figure out what crops are going to be showcased and, and shown there. So, for instance, um, part of the work that I do on, on my farm that's connected directly with this is saving, you know, heirloom tomato varieties, one that's really popular um, called uh, Vantage Tomato. Folks might have gotten that from Ross Travers over the years mm-hmm. and tends to be one that ripens really early and very consistently in our climate, just for instance. I appreciate you making time for the show, and I wish you nothing but the best through the growing season, Sarah. 
Thank you so much, Patty. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. As farmer Sarah Crocker with Seed Change. Okay, that's pretty good. Let's take a break. When we come back, Rick's in the queue. We appreciate his patience. He wants to talk about the cost of living. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let us now go to line number three. Good morning, Rick. You're on the air. Yeah, good morning, Patty. It's uh, Rick from Mount Pearl here calling. I just wanted to, uh, with everything going up through the roof, you know, since since Snowmageddon and to where we are right now, with everything going up, uh, you know, through the roof with taxes and everything else, I just wanted to add a little levity. I was out yesterday and uh, went into E&E and got a couple of fries and gravy uh, to take back to my buddy and to watch uh, New York pound Carolina last night. And anyway, when I paid for it at the... Uh, at, at the store, and I was shot with eighteen sixty three. I said, "Oh my God, two fries and gravy, eighteen sixty three. Yeah, wow. So anyway, so I I buzzed back to the cabin, and we're eating it, and we're it's really good, you know. Wow, man, this is great. And we didn't buy any drinks, right? Because that's another tax coming. But anyway, we didn't buy any drinks, and I'm going down through the bill. And I'm looking down through it. I said, "My God, David! I said the gravy is only a dollar thirty seven a tub." And he looked at me. He said, "Rick." There's money to be made on that. We could put a tax on that, and we could call it the gravy tax. And I looked at it and I said, "Yes, boy, the gravy tax." Because a dollar thirty—that was the cheapest thing on the menu. A dollar thirty-seven. I said, "Yes, that—that's worth three dollars a tub for sure." I said, "We could do a study." I said, "Why not? We—we we just uh, oh, do do a recommendation, do a study, throw three or four million dollars out, and maybe get Todd Perrin and Dean McDonald and I don't know Johnny Howard from the." Uh, from the automotive and John Steele from hospital and sit on a board and see if we could get 40 or 50 margin on the gravy on a tax because outside of the Pepsi and the Coke that we like so much in Newfoundland, we love that gravy. So I said, look, we could be another tax, 40%, and we might be able to pay off most grad problems. So I said to myself, my God, after hearing that gas is going down a penny this morning, I said, i got to give Patty a call. I won't give that much stock, actually. The forecast on gas, uh, I don't think it's going down at all, to be honest with you, based oh, on other well, people that go. I've spoken to. Uh, you know, the incoming tax on sugary drinks, I think, is a uh, reasonable and worthwhile discussion or debate that we should be having. I'm completely not in favor of a tax on gravy. Get your hands off my gravy, Rick. You know, man, I was just thinking, Patty, that was that was the best, Pat, and, and the fries are so good. But you know one thing? The hockey's not the same, Patty, without the Leafs or the, or the Habs in the mix. It's just, uh, it's just not the same to watch it. Good teams, all right, and everything else. But uh, all right to watch them and have a few fries and gravy. I'll say that for you. Yeah, I'm you enjoying the hockey. You know, I stick with it even when my team is out. Uh, but my yeah. Leaf fans, buddies, I don't know how many of them are sticking with it, but they're disappointing exit after one round again haven't won a playoff series in what 20 years so it's pretty bad stuff uh, i am watching a bit of the uh the lightning look fantastic Pardon yeah, me? Light, lightning are, sorry to cut you off no man. problem lightning are probably going to go all the way colorado looked the other good it was good seeing new hook getting a skate i hope he keeps it in the lineup and uh, just see where we go from there because again you know local again and the lady that was talking about the vegetables and and the farming <laughs> I think we should all go back to doing a little bit of farming, put a little greenhouse up at our cottages and stuff, and start being self-sufficient because we got to figure out what's going on. The prices have gone up so much since Snowmageddon and where we are today, and, and the future even looks bleaker. And one more thing to Randy before I go, Randy. 
uh, Patty, is that he should be happy that we're neighbors, good neighbors of the United States of America. That's all I'm going to say. Yeah, for now, anyway. It's a bit of a strained uh, relationship in recent years, but... As uh, soon, as, soon as Russia comes over the top looking for the Arctic, we we got to be... We're in a precarious times, and uh, I don't want to rant anymore, so, Patty... Best of luck to you and talk to you soon. Appreciate the call, Rick. Take good care. Bye. Okay, bye-bye. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to staff rep at the FFAW. That's James Farrell. Good morning, James. You're on the air. Morning, Patty. Welcome to the show. Thank you, sir. Long-time listener, first-time caller. I've always wanted to say that. Terrific. I'm glad you did. <laughs> uh, just calling, actually, about a pretty serious issue uh, that's going on in, in Long Harbor right now with workers who are working out there on behalf of uh, Pennycon Maintenance Services. It's a group of workers I represent are around a, about 150, a few more than them, and they, uh, they work essentially uh, at the Long Harbor site for Valet, who are the, you know, the principal main uh, owners of the site and uh, the company that processes the nickel. Uh, for, for those of you who don't who might not know Valet is a $100 billion, you know, mining giant. And uh, what's been going on at the Long Harbor site, uh, for your listeners who might not be aware, is that there's been this very concerning practice of flipping contracts. It's happened in the past with security services out there. And now it's recently happened with folks who, with skilled trades workers who provide uh, maintenance services to the to Valet on the site. So what happens, uh, and it happens in in industries across the country, there have been legislative protections put in place in some areas, but they continuously re-tender contracts every two or three years uh, to try to suppress costs and to drive wages down. And so what's happened now in Long Harbor is that Valet has re-tendered a contract. They've terminated essentially 150 employees, and now the ones who are lucky enough to be asked to come back and work for a, a new company uh, with less wages uh, have to make a decision now of, of whether or not to put on a new hard hat for a new company for less money uh, when, uh, you know, when nickel's never been better, uh, and uh, or, or or to or to take a job at all, and so it's a very uh, it, many people aren't even being offered their jobs back, and, and there's just no justification for it other than to uh, to suppress workers' wages and to bust their union rights and uh, to otherwise uh, you know make things difficult for rural Newfoundland and people who live and work in in, in this industry. Uh, LA comes here and mines our resources and um, and then continues to, to suppress wages of workers. Uh, these, these employees were making a fair living out there and uh, by no means is it easy work. Uh, and now uh, they've all had the rug pulled out from underneath them and it's a, a very concerning issue that I think our legislators need to pay attention to and the public needs to pay attention to. It usually happens to very precarious workers in food service and security but uh, in this case, now it's happened to skilled trades workers uh, who are also precarious in this scenario, and uh, it's uh, it's something uh, our government knows about, uh, and it's an unethical practice, um, and it needs to be uh, it needs to be stopped. A very similar conversation was had at Bullarm. And I don't know a whole lot about this particular uh, swapping of contracts, but DF Barnes won the maintenance contract. That much I know. When the issue reared its head at Bullarm, there was the thought that, well, they don't have unionized workers, when of course they do. There was a concept of they're not paying fair wages, but they were. So 
where do we get the numbers? Because the bull arm was really struck down quite easily because when people were asked what they were making is just what they were making prior to. They had some different issues regarding job descriptions, who could do what when, but the rate of pay was still what it was when it was under other leadership and different organizations. So they're also, I know a guy who's a uniform member, he's been rehired at virtually the exact same dollar he was making prior. So how, are, how is this a suppression of wages or busting union when they have, they're paying equivalent wages and they are unionized? They're not paying equal wages. All the workers out there who are being asked to come back and take their old jobs for for less, they're all being asked to take it for less. I mean, you don't, as a company like Valet, you don't retender contracts to pay, uh, you know, labor contracts to pay people more money uh, or even the same amount of money. You do it to pay less. And so when you look at the whole package of benefits that these employees have, even the hourly wage is decreasing by $5 an hour roughly. And then if you look at the other terms and conditions of employment around uh, overtime, shift bonuses, overnight premiums, things of that nature, these have all been degraded. Uh, and that's invariable across the board. And so what you yeah, they may have union representation, uh, but what happens is, is that you find union contracts with old less wages and bring them in and, you know, uh, you know, make people bid and compete and cause a race to the bottom. And uh, and where we're left now is where employees are, are being paid less in virtually every area, uh, in every term and condition of employment, be it benefits, wages across the board. So, you know, I, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't believe the hype. And, you know, the, the, the other issue here, Patty, is that when you negotiate union contracts, you negotiate part of that comes with that is seniority rights. You know, a lot of these people are long service employees who have been working around, uh, you know, chemicals and, 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 you know, doing very dangerous hard work, traveling to Long Harbor after working 12 hour shifts. You know, they work, you know, weeks in a row in some cases uh, without a day off. These are difficult jobs and they should be paid fair decent I mean these are not luxurious jobs by any means Patty and so let's not uh, let's not sugarcoat what these people do out in Val in, in Long Harbor. Oh I wouldn't they, uh, I wouldn't it's, it's, it's tough, not it's a tough gig and they, and they deserve the wages they get uh, and Valet a multi-billion dollar Brazilian mining giant has decided to uh, to retender contracts to, to to pay people less, and there's really no justification for it. And we've had our minister, Minister Parsons, in the media over the past few weeks, uh, you know, uh, you know, pumping Valet's tires, and uh, you know, with the deal with Tesla and Nickel, and but the reality is, it's not all that rosy. Valet is a very sophisticated contractual party, and they are out there nickel and diming and pinching employees, pitting them against each other, making them compete for their jobs. So when you negotiate new union contracts, you have seniority rights, Patty. And so now what's happened is they have eliminated the seniority list, and now they can pick and choose who they bring back. They can bring in temps. They they can leave the the longest standing employees without a job. We're seeing people at the top of the seniority list. They're now not being offered their old jobs back, and uh, there's really no justification for it from my perspective, Patty. Sorry. I can only tell you when I looked uh, deeply into the bull arm issue, it, I quickly found out that it wasn't quite the dire situation that it was painted by some. Uh, Anyway, the, the issue as it pertains to valet, that's where the that's where the 
issue should be broached, just in my personal opinion, because they're the big dog on the block here, as opposed to whoever won the security contract, whoever won the maintenance contract. We sort of start with them because they're easier, closer to reach out, and they're tangible. We can touch them, as opposed to the big nameless, faceless valet and the Brazilian mining giant that it is. Uh, I do appreciate the time this morning. uh, James, would you like to have the final word before we take a break for the news? Yeah, I would just like to say, Patty, that I think it's time for our government to do something here and step in and, and protect our businesses from and, and our workers from having the rugs pulled out from underneath them. If I was to transfer or to, or to sell my business and I'd have unionized employees, the, the person who bought my business would inherit those unionized employees and unionized contracts. That's how labor relations should work. In this province, however, there's a loophole, and you can – you can retender a contract and boot out the union contract and bring in a new service provider with essentially the same people and force them to work for less. And so our government needs to stand up and do something about this and even apply it retroactively if they can. And so I'll leave you with that thought, Patty. Uh, I appreciate your time this morning. And I appreciate yours. Thanks, James. Thank you. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. James Farrell is staff rep at the FFAW Unifor. Let's take a break for the news. When we come back, we're speaking with you. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. Welcome back to the program. Let's go. Line number four. Colin, you're on the air. Morning, Mr. Daly. How are you this morning? Doing okay. Thank you. How about you? Doing good. Thanks. Good. I wanted to talk. Sorry. I wanted to talk about George W. Bush. Uh, he made a speech last week in Texas. And said the quiet part out loud. Yeah, big Freudian slip, eh? Absolutely. It was it was unbelievable, actually. You go ahead and uh, fill in the folks, because he was making reference to Putin's actions and the invasion of Ukraine, but he inadvertently slipped in a different country. Yeah, the I word. Yeah. Iraq. Yeah, amazing. Yeah. And uh, then he realized what he said. And then he uh, quickly added on uh, during the speech, yeah, Iraq too. That was an unjustified war. The hypocrisy is palpable. The lack of intelligence is demonstrable. I don't mean military intelligence. I mean his intelligence. He should just sit in a corner and be seen and not heard. And the same goes for his unindicted uh, partner in war crimes, Tony Blair, who last week uh, gave a, an interviewer speech and referred to Putin's invasion of Ukraine as madness. The two of them should be in The Hague, jointly tried together in the docket, jumping up and down in front of a panel of judges, along with Putin. Hard to believe any of that's going to happen, but, you know, it. <laughs> They're speaking to who they think their audience is, which has become a bigger and bigger problem with politics and political figures over the last 50 years or whatever number people like to select. Because they know that there is a huge swath of the American population that they think they're on the right side of history, regardless of what we're talking about. Military intervention in one country or another, support of one country or another, arming one country or another. They just always can't see past the end of their nose to think, well, we're on the right side of things here. There's going to be a, a portion of the population 
Commission that realizes quite clearly the intelligence was deeply flawed prior to the invasion of Iraq. It was all rah-rah at the time, given how close it was, the proximity to 9-11. But until you get past understanding that, it's not about defense. It's not about protection. It's not about territory. It's about the military-industrial complex, no more, no less. So until we can wrap our minds around that, we're going to fall for the empty rhetoric offered by one politician or another. Well said. It's, uh, you know, the United States is not the world's policeman. George W. Bush uh, authorized the invasion of a sovereign nation uh, under the pretense that that nation had weapons of mass destruction, and they did not have weapons of mass destruction. And there was no intelligence that they had WMD. No. You know? I mean, lots of countries, our country included, we don't particularly like leaders of other countries, like the leader of North Korea. We don't like him. He's a thug. But are we going to attack him? No. You know, bad things uh, happen in the world. Uh, Countries have bad leaders. Not everybody lives in a democratic Western democracy like like we do. We don't we don't have the legal authority to just invade countries on a whim because we don't like their leaders, which is what this was all about. And then take that country's natural resources and use that country's natural resources to rebuild the country. As in the case of Iraq, use their oil and gas, you know. Yeah. You just got to shake your head. We still have uh, an awful lot of commentary that sounds like this. Is that we are defending our rights and we're standing up for freedom. And I, I think that's glorified war over the years and you still hear it associated with some of this you know the the thought that any support military or otherwise uh, and i guess armaments and humanitarian aid offered to ukraine is fighting for democracy when i think that might have a tinge of truth but it's it's much more nefarious than that. And so I'm, I'm really at a loss as to why, you know, protecting my right to vote, protecting my freedom of speech you know, and freedom of expression. So it's not that. It's not that. We're offering justifications that are fanciful versus what is actually pragmatically happening. So it, it, I've admitted, and I'll continue to admit, my intake of some of the issues that are happening during the invasion of Ukraine, I've limited it because I just have too much going on in my mind and I don't need that clutter, to be honest. Um, I follow along as much as I need to just so I can know what's happening. But we've got political jibber-jabber that dominates the the so-called narrative versus just his historical context, what was the provocation or the lack thereof. It's just all very frustrating for me anyway. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it, it is kind of overwhelming. And then in this day and age now with the Internet and disinformation and misinformation, uh, you look at the average American, and I, I guess a lot of Canadians too, maybe, uh, they get their news from uh, Facebook and Twitter and other social media platforms. And there's not a lot of critical thinking that goes into that. And I think uh, politicians play on that a, a lot to uh, curry favor and win votes. And that's pretty sad. Uh, it's pretty much uh, a, a solid summary. I mean, they test drive these things. You know, you lick your finger, you put it out the window, see which way the wind is blowing, and follow it based on what your political hopes or aspirations are. And I get it. That's nature of the beast. That's how politics is played, for better or for worse, and I would suggest for worse. But it's, you know... 
And plus, we've arrived at a place where I don't know, you know, the country's divided. Well, not as divided as people like to pretend it is, but so many people are just so staunch in the belief there can't be a sway. And, uh, you know, big things like international diplomacy and international relations and war, and uh, those are kind of standalones. Even bring it back to the fundamental things we talk about in our day-to-day lives uh, in this neck of the woods. And, you know, if you're not with me, you're against me. We've just made that a zero-sum game when sometimes we're talking about fairly mundane issues, but all of a sudden, if you don't agree with me, lock, stock, and barrel, then you're against me, and you're an idiot, and you're a traitor, and you should be tried for treason, and all these types of things which have bled into our political discourse, which is, is uh, it's alarming, to be honest with you, because a fundamental disagreement needn't end up in personal conflict, but far too often now, that's exactly where we end up. Well, that's right, and a lot of the leaders that uh, run the show uh, nationally in this country, the United States and other countries, they take that dichotomy approach, and it's either you're with me or against me, and, and when you do that, you exclude the middle ground and you excuse you exclude nuance. And there's the vast majority of arguments, especially when you're talking about international relations and use of military and geopolitical uh, situations around the world, they're heavily nuanced, and the people in charge running the show are anything but nuanced. They got the IQ of a bag of bricks in a lot of cases. And some of them are just straight-up sociopaths. You know, the uh, common ground is, is one thing, but it's important, like, whoever you support, whatever individual politician, whatever party or ideolog- uh, ideological political stance, we also have to remind ourselves that not any one politician, one party, or one portion of the political spectrum is right on everything. It's simply impossible. Like, nobody has all the answers. So just because your favorite says one thing doesn't mean they're always right. They may never be right. They may sometimes be right. They might be half right. They might lack the nuance. But no one does. it just does not matter who you favor. The ability to say, wait, now I don't agree with that, as opposed to, well, just because that's where my leanings are, then they must be right. Well, No. It's just not the way. He could be a staunch Trudeau liberal supporter, but it's foolhardy to think that everything that he or his party says is on point. The same thing could be said for Mr. Poliev or Charest or anybody else and or Biden or Trump. Or, it's just not true. It never has been. It never will be. No one has all the answers. And so we just got to stop being so unwavering in thinking that if the other side says it, it has to be wrong. Sometimes it might be and might be opposed to your personal opinion, but not everybody has got it figured out. Nobody has it all figured out. So that's probably a good place to start political conversations. Uh, last word to you, Colin. Well, you're absolutely right. And, uh, you know, it, again, it comes down to a, a lot of it to the uh, lack of critical thinking. And whether it's COVID or the abortion debate now in the United States, you have to look at the science behind a lot of these topics. And uh, you have to listen to the experts, the people who actually work in this field. You have to listen to the obstetricians and the gynecologists and the family physicians and uh, the nurses and, and all the other people who work in women's health, for example, if you're talking about abortion. And you're talking about an 18-year-old woman who's uh, going into a hospital. She's hemorrhaging from an ectopic pregnancy. And the obstetrician says that we have to do surgery and, and that uh, fertilized egg that's stuck in the fallopian tube, that has to be removed or that woman's going to bleed to death. No. That's a fertilized egg. That's a human being. She has to maintain that pregnancy. That's the mentality of a lot of people, and that's going to, that doesn't make for good policy, and it's not good science. And it's, and that is not what science says. You know, there's no critical thinking. Just, just on the abortion debate, for example, you know? Yeah, and that's, again, some of those debates, very much like uh, gun control, for instance, they are 
intellectually bankrupt sometimes and it's a real shame because these are important conversations that we have to be able to have in open form but they become tricky sometimes uh colin i appreciate this thanks for the call thanks patty have a good day you too bye-bye Bye now. all right let's take a break when we go back dryers there to talk about fish plants don't go away welcome back to the program let's go to line number two gerard you're on the air yeah patty how are you doing i'm doing okay how about you yeah you got a wonderful furry them by dear uh uh uh, looking after you. <laughs> yes, sir. Always good to have someone from up the shore taking care of you. Yes, sir. I want to congratulate the people of St. Mary's Bay on getting that license, processing license, because it's the survival of their communities. A lot of people are probably against it, but it's the survival of the people and the business in that community right through the seminary line, you know, from St. St. Vincent's. But, uh, that's great, and there's a lot of communities can learn from them for survival, because we have uh, we have a couple of plants here, one in Cape Royal, and, and we have one here in Agafort that create a good, find a lot of employment, and there's a, a good enterprise here. But we also have uh, bundles of crab that leave from use, and we have a a great plant up there and a marine centre and a boat basin and I think it should be a good opportunity for the uh, communities from Traversi to uh, La Manche to get together now and try to approach the local owner of the plant and see would they want to expand and approach the government to because that plant could create employment for three, four hundred people that planting from use. And there's no other place in Newfoundland and Labrador with a, a much raw material that leaves from use and is struck across the Whitless Bay line out of off the southern shore. There's no other place. Well, like everything else, Gerard, where you stand depends where you sit, right? So yes. the folks in St. Mary's and surrounding communities, they're thrilled. The folks maybe, uh, I guess O'Donnell's can maybe benefit, but their uh, their application was rejected. We just spoke with Jason Russell out at Bay Roberts. Uh, there was an application from Ramia, another one from Codroy Valley, and they okay. didn't get it. So it's one thing to be celebrating on one side, and I get it. Look, they were very forceful and loud, and they, they wanted what they wanted in St. Mary's, and I don't deny them that because they were on the show doing exactly that. But one one group's glory is bad news, possibly for others. So this yeah. is a. I, I'm I'm glad I'm not in the business of having to approve or reject any of these applications because, yes. of course, everybody wants what they want when they want it. They do, they do, they do. And we have a we have a plant here on Cape Royal and uh, create a lot of employment. But uh, we have one here in Agafort, locally owned by a local businessman in Harbour Race but it creates a lot of employment too and uh, makes a lot of people happy and it's a, it's a well ran plant, well operation and uh, but we got an awful lot of raw material yeah. leaving here on the southern shore headed, headed across other places and I think in, in for survival from Trapassi to La Manche it's going to be critical in what employment they have for the community, you know. And uh, I think it's a great opportunity for them to approach it from another angle and and see if if, if there's room there 
to process some more of this product. Gerard, was the operation in Aquaford uh, Danny Graham's? Yes, yeah. and, and, and Joe George Bader yes, in yes. Harbour Grace, well-respected gentleman, and he respected his workers. And, uh, and the plant in Cape Royal is owned by North Greenland. They purchased it. It used to be privately owned, too. That created a lot of employment, too, a lot of employment. But uh, the plant in Agafort, uh, uh, employ uh, a lot of people too and they, they get a lot of work they get a lot of work but we have a wonderful planting from use and a harbour that could take any size vessel and lots of room for for parking and development and, and we have a wonderful marine centre there and, and it's mostly the home of unloading the vessels because there's no other there's no other community I don't think in Newfoundland and Labrador that's putting through put, that raw material is leaving the place and going elsewhere, right? So I think that yeah. I, I really think that the council should get together and 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 get together from Trapassi to uh, to La Manche and, and approach this from another angle. And uh, because it's going to be survival for the gas bars and the food land and stuff like that you know is the survival in the community this this is now right there's a lot of regions that are in this uh, very similar boat on those types of fronts uh gerard very quickly before i go to the news how is your operation going good good everything is good, good. and uh and uh very good business and uh Things are going very well. I'm glad to hear it, Gerard, and I'm glad no. you made time for the show. Well, thank you very much. Take good care of yourself. Okay, Penny. Okay, bye-bye. Oh, I should have mentioned to him uh, how well the Southern Shore did. I wonder her. Took out Clarenville, forgot. All right, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we'll talk about doctor shortages, rewards programs, and then whatever you want to talk about, don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM, it's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back. Let's go to line number one. Peter, you're on the air. Patty. Sir. Yes, sir. Uh, good morning. A um, bit different uh, story this morning, or a bit more different complaining anyway. Uh, the healthcare system uh, a Newfoundland and Labrador. Um, I had a, I'm not talking just about myself. Look, I just said Newfoundland and Labrador. You know, like we get more money, or so I'm led to believe, per capita from Ottawa for health care than any other problems. No, it's on and a percentage basis, so we get to the exact same percentage-wise as every other province. Well, okay, I, uh, I'll i be wrong on that, but I agree with you if, uh, if that's a fact. But anyway, we got the, the worst, like, I had a, a, my own doctor up until last year, and you don't really realize what crisis is in for seniors until you wind up with no doctor. If you've got a doctor, well, you know, like, uh, I guess the Medicare is not so bad. Uh, if you're waiting on a, on a hip replacement, you can live. But if you're waiting on a heart trouble or cancer surgery or something like that, well, then you're not on the waiting list. You're on death row. And, you know, like, we'd expect more from the government than, than what they're doing. That's Minister Haggie and uh, and uh, Premier Fury, you know, being being in uh, being leaders in that, you know, and I I really think 
that we seniors who don't have doctors are on par with a third world country when it comes to health care. I'm not saying the ones that got doctors to go to. For example, there's a clinic in Whitburn. It had six doctors regularly, x-ray and lab, that you could visit your doctor and probably go on and get your blood testing done after that and what, what, whatever. But now it's one doctor five days a week, and there's one doctor one day a week. And, you know, like... I know for a fact that there's people there from Sunnyside, come by chance, for the people who don't know. And then you got Arnold's Cove, Southern Harbor, Little Harbor, Chance Cove, Bellevue, and then you come on over to Fairhaven, and then you go down Trinity Bay, down probably as far as heart's content. And that's a lot of area of people. And, you know, like nobody is really doing anything, and the government don't have to come out and say that they're going to close, which is a rumor in the ear of the uh, medi- uh, medical center in uh, in Whitburn. But if you don't have, if something happened to those other doctor and the one doctor per one day per week, well, it will close itself, and the government won't have to come out and make an announcement that the health center in Whitburn is closing. And that's a lot of people. And sad to say, you know, now without, uh, without, you know, having access to a doctor, you know, like, where, where are all those people going to go? You know, uh, I visited the center on a personal thing there about uh, a week ago. I won't say the name of the doctor, but that was his last day. So I had requisitions to go get further testing done and stuff like that. So it was in the system. It's in the system. So if I find a doctor somewhere in Merge, whatever, they can go in and take that out of the system. But I had nobody to send the results of my examination back to. And I'm going to get an appointment with somebody on a phone call to get the results uh, in the next day or so. So I'm only ta- I'm not really talking about myself because I'm talking about all seniors in Newfoundland and Labrador. Like it's nice for them when they're when they're campaigning to go in and get a senior citizen up in a chair in a home and dance with them and sing with them and get their vote and God bless them and all this kind of stuff. But when a time is to come, the seniors are really put to one side. And I mean, the ones with no doctors, they're put farther one side. For the ones with no doctors here in Newfoundland, is my belief that we're on par with a third world country. And if that's the best Fury can do, Premier Fury and John Hagee, both of them should resign and go back to their profession. Because politicians, they're not. Doctors, I would say, they're probably, they're probably the best in their field. But that's just exactly, and it's getting worse all across Newfoundland and Labrador. And I don't know what's going to become of it. And we got, they say, like, there's a backlog because of the pandemic. Patty, let's get real. Most of the people that died in Newfoundland and Labrador because of COVID died because of other reasons, just they had COVID at the end. And our hospitals weren't overloaded like other places. And then the nurses and the doctors that are there, no disrespect to them, only respect because... I have people who work in that, those professions, and you know, like 
they're on call, they work their regular shift, and then they're on call. They don't know when they're going home. They don't know when they need a babysitter or a home care or a, you know, to put those children in. <laughs> and so, you know, you know, Patty, something got to be done. Someone got to take this seriously. And when it comes to the opposition, that got to be the easiest job in the world to be the opposition. You come on, you do a 30-second clip on the news, and then your job is done. For the man that follows up with it and makes something happen, now that's an opposition person. But for the person that just comes on and says, where is the opposition when it comes to the to the seniors? You know, where where is it? I know it's like there's a lot of other younger people probably haven't got no access to doctors either. Like my wife, she got a doctor, but she told my wife that if she took me on, she's overloaded now. She'll be just neglecting the patients that she got. Yeah, I'm not so sure what people suggest can and should be done in the short term regarding the numbers of doctors that we don't have. Um, and nobody likes when we make any comparisons to what it's like elsewhere. Now, one thing, your opinion is yours, and we're happy to offer it here on the show. Uh, I, I think, you know, we're nowhere near what third-world country status would be, but uh, recruiting a doctor has got to be a pretty difficult task. The lady who's now the new deputy minister responsible, she's got arguably the toughest job in the province. It is a hugely competitive world out there for healthcare professionals, doctors in particular. So no one's arguing that something has to give, something has to be done. We also have a sustainability issue when it comes to doctors. When doctors can pick and choose where they'd like to practice, it will inevitably be harder and harder to recruit doctors to some of these smaller rural parts of the province. Not because I say so, because they say so. So I don't know where we go from here. I guess that's the sort of the the issues around expanding the uh, ability for or scope of practice for a licensed practical nurse or a nurse practitioner, a pharmacist, an op- ophthalmologist, all the way down the line. So the the uh, whatever the transition looks and feels like is going to be a pretty important feature for how healthcare is delivered. And I mean, I you know we pat ourselves on the back as Canadians that we have universal healthcare, but it's not working the way it's intended to. And just to your initial point, I think the the reference you were making as opposed to healthcare transfers, which is a percentage issue, is we spend more than any other province per capita on healthcare, and we're not getting the required outcomes. We're simply not. So if it was only a matter of money, we'd be fine. But obviously, it's something bigger than that, because healthcare budget increases year over year. It's about $3.6 billion this year, some 30-odd percent of the entire budget, and look where we are. So there's something going on. Uh, Peter, off to the break. I appreciate your time. I hope you and the wife are well. Well, anyway, all is well, but I just wanted to get my point of view out there, and my point of view is this. If this is the best that our government can do, well, you know, like, there's not much to look forward in the future. You know, put you all in a home, wait for you to die, so that way you don't have to take care of them. And that's my opinion on that. Thank you. Appreciate the call, Peter. Take good care. All right. Bye-bye. Last break of the morning. Don't go away. Back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Caller, you're on the air. Line number three. Caller? Yes, it's me, but I didn't think I was going to get on there. Okay, what's up? Well, the problem is here with the town of Marystown, like I say, I think you should go and get a fifth grader out of class and tell them to come to situation, uh, get the situation. Here's how it works. Crystal Boulevard is the main artery of this town. And halfway up, there's only about uh, three, kilometers, three kilometers, so halfway up, the town is taken out of cover. There's no way you can get through. 
and the road is closed. And about half a kilometre up, there's another contractor up there. In line up, idling and idling, about 10 or 12 of us let us through. And when we get down, there's no way you can get through because the, the town, the, the, the road is cut in half of the culvert. I went back and said to the buddy, I said, did you know someone else down there? No. Now, what what the information is that, you know, you got a contractor on one end, the town got the road cut off, put in a culvert. I called down to the town. Oh, it's online. I said, my dear, how many people haven't got the online access, which I don't. And if the road is closed, come up to a stop sign, why should they let traffic through? By 10 o'clock, went down. About a half a kilometer, road cut in half. And there's not much, uh, like I told the town, how come you haven't got a detour to let us know? So, like I say, I hope you're listening, town council in Marystown. Like I say, follow the rules of the transportation that works. Put a detour or something there, Mr. Daly. It's unreal. I, my office on Kemmont Road. <laughs> it seems like we are facing construction annually for the past decade. So I get road work frustration. But is there an, an honest, easy detour available? Or are you simply frustrated that you didn't know ahead of time that you went to that particular road just to find it uh, closed? No, well, there's two exits. It's the Preston North and Preston South. So if you put up a detour, just past the light. I wouldn't be coming up the Preston Boulevard. That's a detour. Preston, that's the, only, that's the only access now is to get around and go up to Bjorn. It's for the town. I hope you're listening. Put a detour so people go across Preston North without the interference up here. But if the road is closed, why is a flag person let people through? It should be barricaded off at T totally. Well, so, if, if you can't pass through the entirety of it, and so are there any offshoots or tributaries partway down that particular no, road, like no, residential no. streets or anything, or can it be easily just cut off in full? It, well, like you say, well, if people if people live up to where they put the coffin in, well, that's okay. You can get up, but, they, but if, if I want to go beyond that point or beyond the point coming into Marystown, I can't get it's cut off. But like I say, it's, it can easily be rendered out if the town had the common sense to put a detour so we can go over Crested North and not let, and, and like I say, when you come out the main highway, if you come down Bjorn, say road closed detour Crested North. Yeah, local traffic only, which happens all the time. Aren't we all by, aren't, no, it's, I blame it on the town, and they, and they expect me and everybody to have access. It's online. Well, I said, there's I ain't got no access to online. If you put a detour there, I wouldn't be calling you. I'm sure they're listening and heard your point loud and clear, and I appreciate your time this morning. Okay, have a nice day. You too. Yeah. Take care. Bye-bye. Yeah. All right, let's keep rolling here. Let's go to line number five. John, you're on the air. Yes, uh, good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. Uh, I got a little bit of a complaint about some of the big box stores. They give you this uh, bonus to buy there. You buy so much, and they give you a bonus. You buy their gasoline, they give you so much bonus. Uh, I bought an item there the other day. Nineteen ninety-nine. The taxes on it were three dollars. It came to twenty-two ninety-nine. I happened to have six dollars and seventy-nine cents in bonus dollars, so I said, "Well, take that off." So they did, and the bill came to sixteen twenty, which I paid and I went on. But when I got home, I was looking at the bill. I'm older now, old senior citizen. I, I, I scrutinize everything now. <laughs> anyway. 
here's what they did. They took the they, they charged the uh, the tax on, then they took the bonus off the taxes and everything. Instead of taking the six seventy nine off the nineteen ninety nine, which would have left me thirteen twenty, and then the taxes of a of a dollar ninety eight, I would have had to pay fifteen eighteen instead of sixteen twenty, which was a dollar one. Now a dollar one is not very much, but to a senior citizen on a fixed income, it's a lot. And not only that, this store is making millions of dollars every year. So, you know, this $1 and two cents is a rip-off that they're ripping off all of their customers. There's a, a lot of the reward programs are suspect. So the last time I saw numbers, there's somewhere in the neighborhood of $50 trillion in unused points out there. And most of the active accounts are, are pardon me, most accounts are inactive. But the, the fine print, when you think about it, it's your rewards benefit should be taken off the price of the product. Not the price of the product plus tax, which I guarantee if you read to the depths of the fine print, it would say from total purchase price, which would include the tax, which just doesn't feel or sound as fair as they portray it to be. I know where you're coming from. Yeah, it's ridiculous, you know. Just ridiculous because this is this is money that's taken taken back from your reward points and going into the pockets of the company. You know, yeah, it's, it's ridiculous. You know, I think I think somebody should take a class action suit against them. Well, they they certainly sold their product for more than you thought they should have, and they simply allowed their government to get less quote unquote. It's not exactly mathematically hundred percent accurate what I just said, but I get where you're coming from. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, thanks, John. Uh, have a good day. You too, buddy. All the best. All right. Bye-bye. Uh, bye-bye. Last word goes to Linda on two. Linda, you're on the air. Yeah. Hello, Patty. Hiya. There was a lady called in to you. She said she was coming down this way, the 27th or the 28th. She wanted to look at the uh, icebergs. Yeah. I was wondering, did you watch the news yesterday even? Uh, I watched snippets of it. I was busy. But what in particular? About this? Uh they had a lovely picture on it there about icebergs. Gary King sent it in. Okay. Uh, down in Murrits Harbour. Very well. And uh, they were showing the great big iceberg and there was a boat going out with passengers on it. I suppose they were going out to have a look at it, right? Sure. But... Uh, I thought it was a lovely picture for you to, set, to let that lady know when it comes down that they could go out and see it. I sent her a variety of points of contact to try to get uh, Captain Edward Keane to bring her and her crew out to see them. I gave her contact information for a bunch of different tour boat operators. I sent her the link to the Facebook page for Iceberg Finders. So I gave her as many tools as I could possibly think of yesterday to try to help her out. Okay, thanks. Because uh, uh, I was gone yesterday, but I happened to see that on news. So I said I called in and t- uh, tell you about it. I'm glad you did. Yeah. Yeah, it was a lovely picture. Yeah, they're majestic. You know, we don't know how good we've got with some of these opportunities to see an iceberg. I've had people uh, on the same tour boat as me that have never seen one, and their mind is blown, especially yeah. when they get up close to them. So uh, fascinating stuff. And I'm glad you called to tell me about it, Linda. Yes, you're welcome. Thank you very much. You take good care.
You too. Alrighty. Bye bye. Okay. Bye bye. Yeah. Well, Lala was the lady's name. We called the uh, bringing the. Uh, Japanese tourism show to the province and we gave her as much info as we could and I think she's probably going to have some success in getting hooked up uh, there was three different tour boat operators contact points for Mr. or Captain Kane so we'll see what becomes of it alright good show today big thanks to everyone who supports the program and we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCN and Big Land FM's Open Line on behalf of the producer David Williams I'm your host Patty Daly have yourself a safe fun happy day we'll talk in the morning bye bye